Title IX is a federal civil rights law passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. It prohibits sex-based discrimination in any school or any other education program that receives funding from the federal government. And Title IX is turning 50 years old this June. It was went into effect on June 23, 1972. Here to talk a bit about that is Dr. Ashley Baker. She's the Chief Diversity Officer for Spartan Athletics, and it's great to welcome her back to MSU today. Hello in, in studio this time, Hello. Ashley. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here and really looking forward to another conversation um, with you today. And Dr. B, I, I just sort of gave the definition, f- but from your perspective in, in Spartan Athletics, what is Title IX? Yeah. You know, you captured the definition really well. I think one of the things that I would add to it you know, the scope of Title IX extends well beyond athletics. We have seen, as in, you know, a number of different spaces, sport tends to take the spotlight as it relates to all types of things going on. Um, Title IX legislation was really situated and focused more broadly on access to education and access to opportunities for women. And, Sport has been a space where we've really been able to see that maybe more tangibly than in other places. And, you know, we as a society, we love sport. But when you think about the the root and the focus of what this initial legislation was about, it was looking at what was happening in education spaces and employment spaces of things that weren't covered under the Civil Rights Act that women were wanting to see access. And so we're talking about admissions, recruitment in in college, housing, financial aid, making sure that there was no discrimination against women when these type of resources or opportunities were allocated or or becoming available and that, that women weren't excluded from that. So the sports space was one where when you look historically at youth sport and, you know, there's so many different avenues that you can look at, young girls were not able to access those spaces. They were denied opportunities and they were specifically directed away from spaces like sports um, for all types of interesting reasons. If you, you know, look back into the the history of it because they had concerns about fertility and what if girls played sports, they wouldn't be able to grow up and, you know, become mothers and that there were um, aspects of masculinity that were tied to sport that they did not want girls to then be exposed to or for them to be more masculine because we were in a space and place where we were pushing boys masculine, girls, feminine. And so girls don't do masculine things. And and so early in, in this type of legislation, this is what we were trying to challenge and combat. How did it come about and what was Title IX hoping to address? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's one woman in particular. She's not the only one, but Bernice Sadler, who actually just passed away last year at, I believe, the age of 90. She's kind of coined as the godmother of Title IX. So Bernice was a part-time faculty member at Maryland, and she was up for a full-time opportunity. And she was specifically told, you know, you're, 
you're highly qualified, you're really good, but you just kind of come on a little too strong for a woman. And she had a number of other opportunities present themselves and she kept being redirected and told, you know, women belong in the home raising their children or, um, you know, women don't belong in these spaces. And so she challenged it. She said, I don't think this is okay. And, and she knew it wasn't, acceptable but it wasn't illegal to do it and so she actually is one of the first ones who went to state legislators and and she took the model of the black civil rights movement and thought about how then could this apply to women and affording them access um limiting and and eliminating discrimination based on gender and you know uniquely enough one of the uh, congressional representatives was from the state of Michigan that first introduced this to Congress. And, you know, from there, Representative Green and some other individuals brought this in front of legislation and said, these things are specifically happening to girls and women in education and in business spaces. And we need to have a larger conversation about it. And so Bernice is one who she gathered and, and kind of rallied uh, women across the country and, and again, those in legislation, knowing that, you know, in, in much of the work even that I do now, legislation and policy really help redirect us and also hold us accountable to what equity looks like, to what access looks like. And so she's she's one of the first ones and they held the congressional hearings on women's education and employment. And that set the foundation for the legislation that would ultimately become Title IX legislation. And what would you say has been the impact of Title IX over its first 50 years? How is it evolving? It's a loaded question in that we have certainly made progress. There is no doubt about the fact that women and girls have been afforded more opportunity. But when you start to really look at the details and and the climate of where we are, particularly when you look at women in sport, but even across our society, we're not as far along as we tend to say we are. And I think there's there's kind of three areas where we've seen impact. We've seen the increase in numbers of girls participating in sport at all levels, um, women in terms of access to careers. And, you know, my, my focus tends to always be more on the sports space, but I don't want to neglect that, again, this broader impact of this legislation. But the Women in, Women's in Sports Foundation just released a 50th anniversary Title IX report. And it was released last month in, in or in May uh, of this year. And there was data and there was um, kind of a reality check of, have we even leveled the playing field? And, and what does leveling the playing field look like? So we have more young girls and women having opportunities and access. We don't completely know exactly what's happening at the high school level because we don't report and collect information the same way. But optically, we know there are more girls. There are more girls sports. We see girls championships. We see these these different spaces. And, and I think about my own experience, um, you know, I, I, I don't consider myself kind of like this child of Title IX legislation because I'm, I'm a little bit younger. I wasn't born yet when the legislation was passed, but even my own high school experience, I was a golfer and a basketball player and my high school didn't have a girls golf team. And when we asked about creating a team, you know, there weren't enough of us to create a team and the 
only opportunity for me was to play with the boys and I was allowed to practice and participate in that way, but I wasn't able to access competition, which, you know, for those of us who are competitive in sport, who wants to just practice all the time? You you want to play, you want to compete. But those were examples of what happens in high schools of opportunities and access. Are we funding programs? Do we have the resources to do it? Are the programs equitable? And where are we putting our energy and effort? And we see this at multiple levels in sport, not just at the high school level, but we see it in the collegiate level. And right now you have the WNBA playing in their season and you see differences there. So we've we've opened this door and, you know, there's more women like me that are there and we have opportunities and we're able to pursue, but we're still faced with a number of barriers. We still encounter challenges because the bias still exists. Uh, maybe not the overt discrimination as, you know, hey, go home and have kids and be in the kitchen, but other areas of, of spaces that make it difficult to really thrive and and persist in some of these areas. How would you like to see Title IX, you know, evolve in its next 50 years? And and what are both some challenges and opportunities ahead? So I think when we think about some of the challenges that exist, and and I've shared, you know, the bias still exists and and there's these barriers that are in place. There's, There's kind of three areas that we have to think about of how this particular legislation um, in my opinion and 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 in others' opinions, needs to be updated, needs to be more reflective of where we are in society and even take into account other factors that in the 60s and 70s wasn't necessarily um, a priority at that time. And so there there's these three areas. You have the intersection of race and gender. You have the impact uh, on the experiences of LGBTQ plus young people who are participating in sport or accessing education, and then also young people with disabilities. So while this legislation has certainly impacted women, it failed to, and and really now still fails to to look at the intersection of what happens to women of color, what happens to you know black women in these spaces where we've opened up opportunity and it doesn't take into account what has been coined intersectionality, but this sort of double jeopardy of someone like me shows up. I have the barrier of being a woman, but on top of that also have the barrier of being a black person in spaces that maybe aren't as accepting or have continued to create barriers for people like me. So while women are getting in the door, women like me are showing up and it's like, Oh, she's a woman and we're going to give opportunity. What, but wait, this is a black woman. So all of the things that come with that and this legislation is, is what they, they call it um, a single access law or access law, not access, access in that it specifically only focuses on gender and doesn't take into account these other identities that exist. So now we're looking at transgender students in schools and on sports teams. We're looking at, Young people who have various disabilities, whether physical, cognitive, or or whatnot, and this legislation doesn't completely address how they access spaces. So when you're looking at individuals who have various gender expression, you know we're seeing now we're talking about locker room space and restroom space and who can participate on teams and and all these at the state level legislation looking at it 
at a governing body level in terms of the NCAA and these other sport governing bodies, no, they're not on the same page. And so this, this legislation, I think, needs to be expanded to take into account that there are so many other identities that are impacted under you know, spaces when we're talking about discrimination, that the essence of this is still there that this was about providing an underrepresented and often ignored and overlooked group of individuals. And I think we need to expand that. Dr. Ashley Baker is Michigan State University's Chief Diversity Officer for Spartan Athletics. We've been discussing Title IX, which turns 50 years old on June 23, 1972. And uh, actually, it turns 50. This year, it was started, went into effect June 23, 1972. And While I have you, Ashley, let me ask you to describe your role a little bit as Chief Diversity Officer for Spartan Athletics. What are some things you focus on? Yeah, well, so this position is is a new position, and I think when we've had some other conversations before, we talked about NCAA legislation and the um, expectation and requirement of athletic departments identifying what they call athletic diversity and inclusion designees, so ADIDs. And there's some some emerging scholars that have coined the term ADIOs, which is Athletics, Diversity, and Inclusion Officers. And so there's kind of two unique positions to that. My role, I actually fall under the umbrella of an ADIO in that my sole responsibility in our athletics department is to oversee our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and designees what we see at other universities, not not ours, is um, someone who perhaps has another full-time role that has been designated as the liaison for DEI efforts and initiatives. So Michigan State has really done something that not a lot of universities have done in designating one full-time role that solely will focus on this without all of the other responsibilities that some of my other colleagues have throughout the country. And that for me then means I do this, you know, 24 seven. So I, when I first arrived here, this being an inaugural position, we had to figure out what this even meant for Michigan state athletics. And, and while while doing that, we're simultaneously defining what it means in the NCAA for us to have diversity representatives on campuses and my my first year or so, I'm I'm just about at the year and a half mark, was to just observe and, and learn our culture, understand what was happening in our space, what our staff felt about our our, you know, their work environment, their work experiences, their colleagues, and how our student athletes experiences were, and then how those two things were impacting one another. So I spent a significant amount of time talking with our staff, listening to our staff, and identifying where we had some opportunities for growth, what we were doing really well as it related to the environment and how people felt and how people showed up in our spaces. So we created a DEI roadmap based off of that data. I am a researcher at my core. And I, I, I firmly believe every decision we make should always be data informed. And, <laughs> and I wanted to do that. I wanted to represent the perspectives of the individuals in our department. You know, me as Dr. Baker, I have my own ideas of all the things we should be doing, but I experience our space different than some of our other staff. And so I use their feedback and their perspectives to say, where do we need to go? Where can we improve? Where are our gaps? 
And even more importantly, what are our student athletes needing from us as a staff to help in their development? Because ultimately, that's the purpose. We're, we're here for their development. You know, we love a good game. We love a win on the scoreboard. But we are developing young people. And sport is one of the tools that we are doing that. And so what's their experience? You know, who have we surrounded them with? That is what our DEI roadmap really addresses and helps us think about who works in our department? What are their experiences? How do we show we value them? How do we create a space where individuals can show up as their best selves? You know, we we work in an environment where we never stop. You know, we sports never turns off. You know, there's always the saying like, you know, when you're asleep, your competitions, you know, outworking you. And and that's that's a culture in athletics across this country. And that's exhausting, is tiring. And, and when we're not able to show up at our best or we're doing all of that and we show up and we don't get recognition or we're not appreciated or, you know, going back to some of our Title IX pieces or we're not compensated fairly or equitably, those things impact how we show up as, as staff members and as, as coaches. And then it models for our student athletes and models for this next generation that's coming in our space that this is appropriate or this is okay. So our roadmap gives us a guide. It gives us something to follow. um, And then also something to hold us accountable to say, we said this was our goal and these were our objectives, how we were going to get there. Are we getting there? Uh, You know, did we reach these goals? Are these goals realistic? And and I think for us in particular, and I've, I've had extremely strong support from, from Alan Haller, our athletics director in saying, this is evolving because what what we thought was a good idea, maybe in, you know, 30 day mark of, of his leadership of our department. Now we're months out and maybe this looks different. Maybe we're reimagining what this could be. And there's going to be external influences. What's happening in our society that impacts what's happening, you know, what our staff is experiencing, what's happening in the landscape of college athletics. What happens when new legislation passes from the NCAA? How does it impact our student athletes or or our staff? So that's the long version (laughs) of (laughs) what our DEI roadmap is about and how it will guide us as we move move forward in Spartan athletics. And do you want to touch on the five areas of impact within that roadmap? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the I'll more broadly, you know, one piece is is just about culture and what's what's the environment? What what's the vibe? What's the feel? You know, those, those words are, they get gray, um, in many, in many areas, but, but we know how we feel when we walk in spaces and we know how we feel when we leave, you know, are we peeling out of the parking lot as fast as we can? Cause we can't wait to get out of the office. Cause you know, it's just a terrible environment. You know, th- that that's a real thing and it's, it's very valid. And so the big piece is culture. What do people think about us? How do people feel? Um, how do our fans feel when they come into our spaces and engage with our staff or engage with our student athletes? And again, the wins and losses are one piece of this. You know, most of us cannot control that. Um, and our young people work extremely hard. And sometimes it doesn't go our way. We all have our emotions and feelings about that. But what was your experience interacting with our staff when you showed up at our stadium or at our arena? Um, while you were there, what was your experience? So that's, that's 
two parts because we're looking at this internally and then externally because we do hold a very important space on campus and in our community and, and in our society as a whole because of the platform that college athletics has. So that's the first one. The other piece is education and awareness. You know, one of the things coming off of um, 2020 that we, we saw this uptick immediately in anti-racism training and bias training and um, all these workshops and trainings. And, and I am, our staff knows this, I'm a firm believer that education and, and learning is extremely important. I am I consider myself a lifelong learner. I'm constantly reading about things and learning about things. But when we're just solely doing that and not putting our knowledge into practice, there's a disconnect. And so for me, there is a space in place for us to have a better understanding of who we are as individuals, who the people around us are, understanding our colleagues, you know, as a, one of very few black women that work in our department. I recognize that my experiences are unique in some ways, and then I share experiences with others. But as a new staff member, uh, getting to know me, me getting to know my colleagues, it, it's the nature of what I do is work, but it also is the nature of who we are as, as humans, you know, connection with one another and understanding how we may be in the same space, but you may be impacted in a different way, or we could go you know, walk into the same meeting and we walk out and we both walk out with different perspectives of what happened or what we heard or what we experienced. And so that to me is important. When when we have diverse individuals in spaces, learning about each other is, is part of that connection and part of how we um, can celebrate and recognize. And so piggybacking on that, the other piece is, is recruitment, retention and advancement in our department. And that is specifically looking at our hiring practices and policies. Where where are we going to look for our talent? What is their experience when navigating the interview process? Are we, you know, following? We have rules we have to follow in terms of appropriate questions and things like that. But what are we displaying about ourselves and how are we treating individuals that we potentially are recruiting to come join our Spartan family? And, you know, that is extremely important in terms of the result of that is we get high quality candidates. You know, this is a really great place to work. It's a power five institution. So from a maybe career trajectory point, a lot of individuals want to be in the spaces that we're in, you know, top tier athletics, you know, successful programs. And we have to reach far and wide to say, who are we talking to? And then when they get here, what is their experience? How are we growing and developing our staff? Um, I, I've shared this with our senior leadership, and I say it all the time um, in, in previous roles that I've been in. I want people calling me, trying to steal my staff from me. I want it to be a hard decision for my staff to say, should I go, should I not? Because I love it here so much and I enjoy my experience. You know, and maybe there's this other opportunity. So that recruitment, retention, and advancement, and and who do we see in leadership? You know, we're we're at a unique time. Michigan State actually is is one of the leaders in terms of diversity. At at in in the athletic director leadership position, Alan Haller is not our first black male athletics director. There are a number of institutions who have never had a person of color, but you know, 
that can't be our only reflection of of racial diversity, but even expanding our thoughts around the other dimensions of diversity. So we may be looking at staff and, and a lot of times the data solely focuses on race, ethnicity, and gender. And we aren't catching, you know, what are individuals' backgrounds? What are their experiences? You know, we have some people who have lived in different regions of the country. We have individuals that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, political backgrounds, whatever it is. And we don't always capture that data. And and that's okay. But there are so many different layers. You know, you have introverts, extroverts. You have people who have different work styles. And so when you think about how much value is added when you have different perspectives in the room. You know, it's where innovation and creativity, I think, is is sparked. And when people can challenge one another and say, you know, I had this experience in this space and we tried this. What do we think about it? And, oh, well, we tried that here. I don't know. Maybe we should try it again. So that for me is a big part of this is how do we surround ourselves with people? And then how do we bring the best out of the people that are in our space? Because it's not enough for us to just be here. It's a privilege and an honor to have the jobs that we have. And, you know, it's our duty to make sure we're we're at our best and whatever that best means. Um, so that that's kind of another piece. And just exploring, I, I won't go through, you know, every single one individually, but just looking at, you know, where do we, where do we, connect with our community. So community relations, where do we spend our money as a department? Where do we, um, who do we support? We sit in a community that they show up in all of our venues. They support our student athletes in tremendous ways by showing up at events, donating, whatever it may be. And what are we giving back? Uh, how do how much time do we spend in the community? How much investment do we have in the community? Are we supporting local businesses? Are we supporting small businesses? Something that again we've learned over the past couple years is um, when we have economic turns and things like a global pandemic, small businesses struggled, and we have the ability to invest in those spaces. And it's a responsibility that we take on for ourselves, but also want to role model for others that the big names are great, right? We, we, we celebrate, we use them, but you know, when we're ordering lunch, where do we go get it from? You know, little small decisions like that, that show the type of support or impact we have. Um, Our student athletes going into schools and going into spaces and interacting with our community. Um, that's really important. So that's another part of ours is really looking at what in a corporate world you're calling corporate social responsibility and all of these you know big words. But who are we to the people around us? Dr. Baker, that's a very thorough and uh, inspiring roadmap for DEI and Spartan Athletics. Thank you for telling me about it. And let me just ask you, as we sort of close, what would you like those joining in on our conversation to know kind of about what you're doing DEI-wise in Spartan Athletics? Yeah, well, you know, I, what, I, what I want individuals to know is that, you know, we are truly committed to being better and always pushing ourselves um, to do, do the right thing to value our staff, the people on the campus that are are in our campus community, the community around us. And 
we want to be a model for what this looks like. That is what we are working towards. We are working towards um, excellence in our department. And this is, this is going to show up in a number of ways that, um, in my opinion, as the chief diversity officer, is the result of us being true to this roadmap. You know, our student athletes are going to thrive. And when they thrive, we win. Um, when they thrive, they graduate. When they thrive, they go on and become positive members of our society. And all of that starts with what our culture and our environment is here and how we treat one another. And then I think in other spaces, it shows up in the work that we do, how we have relationships that extend beyond our department and understanding who we are as a department and, and really who our brand is nationally. And it all starts with the people who walk into our facilities and our spaces every day and are afforded the opportunities to be seen on TV, be heard on the radio, be seen in the newspaper, all these different spaces because we have this public facing industry that we're in. Um, and we're also always looking for partners in this work. So as we do our education, as we do some of our programming, we will have a number of programs that are available, not just for our, our athletics department. There'll be a few that are just internal for our own our departmental growth, but also partnerships within the community, connecting our student athletes with resources throughout the community that help them be their best selves. And so the partners in this work is always great. And, and then, you know, we just, we really love people being champions for Spartan athletics and um, supporting what we do, challenging us to be better. Sometimes the feedback is a little tough, but it continues to give us um, the perspective of individuals that maybe are outside of our spaces that, again, we may not connect with immediately because it's not our same experience. And what we hear from our fans and individuals, you know, one tangible example, what we hear about how they feel in our spaces helps us sit with our event staff, our facility staff, our marketing staff, our fundraising staff and say, this is what others are saying about their experience with us. Are we at our best? How can we be better? What challenges, you know, exist and how can we better meet the needs of those around us who, again, support us? Um, usually, without waiver. Um, so that I think for, for, for me, that's what I would love for people to understand about the work that we're doing and our commitment to this and the accountability of seeing these tangible results of that. As you reflect on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, what are you thinking? <sighs> we still have a long way to go, <laughs> but we have really made progress and we we have to celebrate that and we have to acknowledge it. And, and we will do that in Spartan Athletics over the next um, year. There will be a number of events that are centered on celebrating the Trailblazers, specifically within our athletics department. So there have been some incredible women who have had a wide variety of experiences that have challenged this institution, that have pushed this institution, and have also um, shown up and been role models for the young women we have, you know, on our on our teams now and, and the women who work in our department. And you will see over this next year our commitment to celebrating those women because that is extremely important. The work that they did, many of us would not be where we are right now without it. But then also challenging ourselves to say that's not enough. 
because when we get to, you know, I don't know that I'll be around for the 100 anniversary, maybe the 75, but when we get years out from this, we know what the first 50 looked like. How are we going to impact the next 50? And what will we do different? What have we learned from that? And and that for me is what I want us to do. I want us to do it as an industry. I want us to do it in the educational spaces of saying, here's where we are. What have we learned? How do we push ourselves to move forward to make sure that these future generations um, can say some of the same things about us that we say about the women or the other leaders, you know, the men, all the other individuals that have come before us that have impacted these spaces and made them better for us to operate in. So that's, that's my hope. Um, and, and that's what I'd like to see, not just over the next year, <laughs> but continuing on into the future. But I think this, this is a monumental moment in terms of this legislation being 50 years old and us giving ourselves uh, a reality check of where we are and, um, some hopes and dreams of where we could go from here. Well, Dr. Baker, thank you so much for this stimulating conversation, your passion and if for uh, DEI initiatives in Spartan Athletics is palpable and contagious. So all the best moving forward. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me on again. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. That's Dr. Ashley Baker in Spartan Athletics. She's the Chief Diversity Officer. Much more online at msuspartans.com. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.